You're listening to Felony Podcast with your host, Dave Dahl, on the Startup Radio Network. The Felony Podcast explores ex-felons that have gone on to launch their own startups. We explore the ups, the downs, the behind-the-bar stories with these founders. Felony Podcast airs every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. My name is Mark Grimes, co-founder of Startup Radio Network. Also with us in the studio, Dave's partner in crime, Lad Justison. Yeah, like, who the hell is Dave Dahl? This is Felony Inc. Uh, Dave Dahl is the uh, co-founder and creator of Dave's Killer Bread way back in the day. I'm not involved in that anymore, but if you're listening to this podcast for the first time, I thought I'd let you know who I am. And then I have Lad Justison, who um, is a friend. I use that term loosely, but uh, he is someone that is you know, very important in my life. And hey, you know, Lad, what are we up to? What have you been doing? Well, you know, um, we've been working really hard with uh, one of your businesses and other businesses that you have going as well. Um, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for being my friend sometimes. Thank and, you for being a friend. Wow, that was pretty cool. Want me to give a beat, see if you can do it again. <laughs> Didn't go. No. Anyway. So, yeah, thanks for being my friend. Thanks for, uh, you know, we always talk about the opportunities that are given to us. So I thank you for the opportunities that you've given me. Um, I probably should do that every week, um, even though you don't appreciate me saying that. So. No, thank you, man. That's very, very cool. Okay. So uh, our guest in the studio this week is Meg Warden. Meg is a modern-day medicine woman who spent some time behind bars. Orange is the new black style, I'm told. Now Meg's businesses focus on cannabis consultations and health coaching, and she has taught entrepreneurship inside the prison system with inmates. Uh, Hey, lad, why don't you give us a blurb? Well, here's a blurb from Meg. You're going to like this. I don't think Lad can pronounce all these words. I can't. There's a word in here that I'm really having a problem. Maybe you could probably help me with this word as I get to it. First of all, it says, fuck sanctimony. Once upon a time, I spent two years in federal prison for a conspiracy to distribute ecstasy. Wow. I openly share this story as a tool to illuminate the racist, classist, and often arbitrary workings of the prison industrial complex as well as the desperate need for compassionate care of our mental health. (laughs) That was a change of page there, sorry. I do service work mentoring women inside prison, helping them to learn their lives as love stories rather than shame stories. I'm passionate about, come on, Meg, say that word. Destigmatization. Thank you. Telling more truthful narratives, and most importantly, doing everything I can to create a world of cohesion for my son, for all of our children. God, this woman ain't no joke. Wow. That's powerful. She actually said those things, man. Wow. No, she wrote those things. Well, she wrote them. You said them. But she said them. Yeah, she may not have even heard those things said before. Wow. Have you, Meg? I have not heard those things said out loud. No, thank you for capturing that little piece of my writing and bringing it in today. And thanks for bringing me in today. I'm really excited to be here, y'all. Yeah, welcome to the podcast. I'm super, uh, man, I think this is going to be a great one. Um, You know, 
What, what do we want to start with? We, let's, where do we start with this lady? Uh, what a story, you know. First of all, she spent some time in prison, um, like most of us in this room, three out of four. Uh, Alan hasn't actually done his time yet. I think so. it's coming, though. Yet. <laughs> no, come on now. So, anyway, we have, we have, I really want to get to some, some meat here. Uh, where do we begin? I actually went on uh, Meg's website this morning, and I was impressed. What a writer she is, um, and what a ex- you know expression of ideas and um, the spirit of what she's up to. I didn't get into in a lot of specifics about what you do, what you offer, um, and what your business is all about. Why don't you give us a little bit of background? So fun fact, Dave, I'm pretty much doing for money now what I was put in prison for um, to some extent. Selling ecstasy. Not quite selling ecstasy, no, but um, I'm actually, I have a health coaching business. It's it's been about seven years, and in the last couple of years since cannabis has been legal in the state of Oregon, I've actually started specializing in helping folks mic- microdose a variety of entho- enthogens. Um primarily cannabis. It is legal. I also do coach people on microdosing psychedelics without ever advising them to do anything illegal at all. Um, but it is legal to talk about it, and I do help folks talk about it. They are really, really, there is some really powerful plant medicines available to us that can help with all kinds of things, including addiction. And um, so it's kind, of a, it's kind of a fun full circle <laughs> well, so you, you've overcome addiction, uh, is this correct? And you, you know, of course, she's not going to say she's, oh, I'm, I'm you know, strung out right now. You know? Oh, I'm not strung out. <laughs> um, I'm absolutely not strung out. In fact, um, my, my use of plant medicine is absolutely not about getting high. It's about getting healthy. Um, I have, I would say I've overcome addiction. I definitely use some different language around some of that stuff now. It's been a long, long road. It's been a lot of different kinds of treatments and 12-step and incarceration and and, um, some hospitalization. Definitely, I have struggled for a very, very long time with, you know, what I would like to say maybe is like a lack of life skills and a lack of support and a lack of privilege. Mm. And um, how that played out is using, you know, alcohol and other things to be able to make friends and get, you know, that feeling of connection. I think addiction is a lack of connection. It's uh, about isolation. And we live in a culture that is powerfully and relentlessly giving us the message that we're alone in the world. And so that's a little bit more of the conversation I talk about addiction now and that um, returning to connection, finding the support, finding the appropriate medicines, things like that really help pull folks out of addiction. And I've had really, really powerful results that way. I feel really blessed. Yeah. That's a different... um, um that's a mind stretcher, and that's great. We need to stretch our minds. I uh, personally, part of my story is that methamphetamine, in my case, um, was was treatment for me. It was like uh, it was I was self-medicating. It really uh, I was the most miserable guy. I can't imagine being more miserable, suicidal. Um, 
done with life when I put that needle in my arm the first time. And wow, instant gratification, instant happy, instant ready to go. So people don't often understand if you haven't been an addict, like at least like I have, um, you don't really understand what the, you know, some people don't understand what the draw is. Maybe, maybe they're, it isn't medication to most people, um, but it is to a lot of people. And so if you could learn how to replace that, um, I think that's, that's key. What in my case, I did learn. I, I learned something about myself. I waved the white flag, and I think just the, just the act of doing that and the humility gave me courage, and uh, the rest is history, so to speak. Um, so keep going. Yeah, I mean, that word medication kind of stops me. You know, I call myself a modern-day medicine woman, self-prescribed, right? Um, I think that we definitely live in a world where what is drugs and what is medicine is a pretty hard line, and it's a hard line legally and, in fact, is not quite such a hard line um, when we really get down to what it means to be human and the kinds of things we consume. I mean, so many things are... You know, we're, we're all sitting here with coffee in front of us. You know, we're all medicating. There are some medicines, there are some substances that are acceptable medications in a culture of productivity. Coffee is one of those, right? And I drink way too much of it, Me just too, like an baby. Yeah, right? I'm so addicted I to do. it. Um, and then we have, you know, what we can buy at the pharmacy that we call medicine. And then we have what, you know, is illegal and we buy on the street and we call that drugs. And so one of the things I do, you know, professionally now is try to kind of help folks come around to really investigating what it is that they put in their body. And um, I like to invite people to think of everything we put in our body as medicine, because the truth is, you know, our relationships are medicine, our spiritual practice is medicine, uh, the way we keep our house, the, the things we surround ourselves with, the things we consume that are not food or substances or coffee, you know, the information we choose to consume, the news we choose to consume, it all goes in and goes through this filter of our body, mind, and soul, and it comes out as output. You know, it comes out as art. Garbage and, in, garbage out. Right, or art, or, or you know, beautiful, meaningful relationships. Yeah. You know, mm. what are what are we putting out there? Are we putting out um, something that we hope others can consume, or are we just putting out, you know, more, um, more, you know, rea yeah, reactionary demands out the back end that are taking from people rather than giving. So I think mindfulness is the key. And even that phrase self-medication, I think, has such a bad rap. It means you're, you know, often weak and can't handle reality. When I like to think we live in a world where nobody has health care. Who's medicating us? Who is taking care of our health? How about maybe we should be? Um, so I think there's a world where we re-examine how we medicate. And maybe the phrase, you know, in quotes, self-medication isn't really all that bad and all the tools, you know, of course, I've had my experience with methamphetamines as well. It, it works. It actually works. It's not a sustainable long-term right. solution. It's not yoga, but I like to think, you know, it's all in the tool belt. Yoga might work, you know, heroin might work. There's a lot of things that might work to make you feel calm and um, connected and maybe connect you to other folks. Not all of those things are going to give you that that high quality output that really give you the long-term spiritual and emotional 
satisfaction and success in life, but they're all ways to get by, right? That's amazing. We got to be mindful about our choices, and I think self-medication is actually something that we can get real mindful about and take our health, our our mental, spiritual, and emotional health into our own hands. Yeah, and I remember, for me, uh, self-medication, the best, yes, the meth was um, effective for a long time. I I couldn't afford it unless I did grime. So you know, it's kind of a, but but it isn't sustainable. It's not a it's not a long term. It's not spiritually solution. sustainable now. Right, it's not a healthy choice, um, by any means. And you know, I've tried and done. I've been addicted to many drugs, and alcohol was probably the worst. Hell okay. yeah, <laughs> high five. <laughs> availability, anybody? Yeah, availability, baby. Uh, in this town, are you kidding? And uh, so. So for me, you know, actually, the, the best self-medication that I ever had was mental um, and spiritual. I, I recognize it as spiritual now. I, at the time, it was just mental. I am very, uh, very prone to empirical thinking, empirical evidence being, you know, necessary. I, I don't believe much um, that I'm told, and that's what got me started on my little journey. <laughs> I had to go find out for myself, and I'm still finding out, and I mean, I think that's a beautiful thing, and and so I do try to put the good stuff in me. Uh, I'm not not real good about the healthy side of physical side. I smoke cigarettes like like a champ, and... uh, You gotta pick your poison. That's my one, that's my one serious, uh, that's one thing I'm holding on to. Um, wow. The thing about that you just said, though, about um, never really accepting the status quo, you know, and all the work since, I mean, I, I could say that very same thing about me. I mean, even when I went to prison, I was like so rebellious, you know, that here I've been given this time. They said, you got time. And immediately my mind was like, what? You know, you're going to give me time and you're going to call that a punishment? Everybody out here, everybody in the world, this world of productivity, everybody running around with their coffee. What does everybody say? Ain't got enough time. Ain't got enough time. Ain't got enough time. And some judge takes away all my rights and gives me time. And my first thought was, fuck you. You're going to give me time? The only thing I have the freedom to do right now is decide I'm going to take that time, and it's going to be a gift and not a punishment. You can take my body. You cannot take my mind. You cannot take my soul. And I can't say that during my time I didn't have meltdowns and and Mm. feel really terrible. Prison is no fun. It is no joke. It is not for the faint of heart. But I'm not at any point was I like going to let go of that. You know, I was not going to accept that status quo. And as a person who's worked inside prison with entrepreneurs and outside prison with startup folks and incubators and whatever, the thing that I've found with these people who are attracted to entrepreneurship, there's a section of folks that end up in prison that have that exact quality where they don't accept the status quo. And maybe it's gotten them into trouble, but it's also the very same thing that when you flip it around makes them incredible entrepreneurs. Same thing can make you laugh, can make you cry. Mm-hmm. I uh, have to go. Have to say that for me, um, that was that took a long time. I mean, for me to start realizing that time could be a gift, that it could be powerful, that it's so meaningful to have that. Oh boy, I would actually wouldn't mind doing a year right now. In a sense, you know, don't 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 no, don't take that seriously. Yeah, I say the same thing. Take a little break. Get on the bunk. Not pay rent. Yeah, not fair. 
And I could sit there and catch up on so many things. Um, you know, I'm a different person than I was when I started doing time. When I started, you know, obviously, when I started doing time, I was, uh, man, I, I had too much time in my hands already. Yeah, so giving me time in prison just it was like a slap. But I eventually, that's because I wasn't enlightened at all. Um, there, there came a point where in the fourth, my fourth prison sentence is what it took. I was 38 years old and I waved that white flag and from that moment on, my time was precious. And I started looking at those corrections officers and others who tried to make my time hard. And I just realized they were the ones doing time. <laughs> and because I, I, I had found this gift, it took me a long time, but uh, well, you can be free anywhere you are. And that's, that was my great moment to realize that. And so I've been trying to be free ever since. And, you know, being, being successful has nothing to do with money. Um, eventually, money, you have to have money. Uh, it's necessary. It helps. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, success is in your mind. It was in my mind way before I had a dime. And I just continued to... Uh, I, I, the, the challenge for me was actually when I got all the kinds of success, worldly success that I ended up with was to actually hold on to that great spiritual um, feeling that I that I had learned. And um, so it's still a challenge today. I'm, I'm working on it every day. And, you know, sitting here with you is actually um, very good for kind of uh, reinforcing that and giving me some, some, maybe some new tangents to go down in my mind. You know, um, Meg, uh, we, we talked earlier about um, you going back into the prisons and uh, doing a little entrepreneurship with some of the inmates or whatever. Can you tell us how that began, how, uh, you know, you eventually got in there to do that? Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it, it was kind of a, it, it, it was a process. Getting out of prison took me a while before I really wanted to even tell anyone. You know, that was a whole process to learn how to even tell my story at all. Um, eventually, I started working online, and it took me a little while. But at some point, um, one of my <clears throat> folks that I was um, consulting with on my website, my copy was like, you got to put that story right out there. So I did that. That was actually one of the best moves I've ever made. Um, Big lesson. Yeah, that story, having control of it, being able to tell it the way I wanted. I mean, that kind of started this whole thing about, you know, helping people tell their life as a love story instead of a shame story. Um, I was writing about it. I, I've t written stories, told stories on stage about it. So I was kind of in this place of really wanting to share that. I think part of me wants to go back in and appease myself a little bit. And then part of me really wants to share some of the ways that I've been able to articulate things. I know that I see things differently than other people and, and have something I can offer. I know that there's just such a lack of hope, such a lack of confidence. These This is a population of folks that have been just beat down, beat down, beat down by so many things for so long that sometimes it just takes somebody coming back in and saying, you know what? You already have the tools to do this thing. So somebody had sent me a link to a group out in um, New York City, and uh, I started, I called them up and and had a little conversation with, uh, with them about where I'd been and, and what I was doing, and they invited me to come out to New York and spend some days in their classroom mentoring their crew. That was just so much fun. Um, I, in fact, I brought my son who came out. He was so stinking cute because part of my story is that How I, old is he? He, right now he's 15, but he was 18 months old when I was incarcerated. 
um, and then he was three and a half when I got out. And so part of my storytelling has been how to navigate talking to my own kid about this story as well and doing that without like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry I made a mistake. Our story has always been like, you know what? I had to leave. It sucked. And I came back and I will always come back. The end. Here's my story. Here's your story. And someday you'll be able to tell it. In fact, just yesterday he said that he was going to write a little story about me coming out of prison. So he's finally at 15 starting to kind of own this story for himself. But so I go out there. My kid comes out. It's absolutely moving. I mean, I'm just beyond rewarded by the kind of interchange that I have with these folks. It just was so, felt so good. Getting and it back. gave me, yeah, and it also gave me credential. I mean, I was walking around for a long time with not much but a felony. Mm-hmm. So um, it really meant a lot to me to be well, able to great. feel like I was useful. I then transferred after a couple years of mentoring with them. I um, found a crew here in Portland started going inside of uh, one of the the men's prison here. So we were then doing entrepreneurship classes inside a prison here in Portland. Was it Columbia River? Columbia River, yeah. Yeah. We went in um, to there with uh, that crew. And then now I'm actually not doing so much entrepreneurship stuff. I'm doing more storytelling stuff. I'm working directly with moms in prison over at Coffee Creek through an organization there. That could be powerful for them too, right? I mean, just learning to tell their own story in a positive way. Yeah. I mean, making, making um, you know, realizing there's lessons all along the way and, you know, growth. It's, you know what, it's the same basic lessons, honestly. I mean, whether we're in the container of here's how to learn how to do a pitch and and start your business or whether we're in this other conversation about here's how to talk to your kids and your family, it's all about kind of turning around, like taking time and saying, that's not a punishment, it's a gift. It's like taking shame and saying, you know what? You've been through the underworld. Your gifts, you have great power and medicine in your wounds. It's adversity that can be fantastic. You don't have to walk through the world feeling like you have something to be ashamed for and something to apologize for just because this, this culture says that when you go to prison, you're a throwaway. You're not a throwaway. You are actually, despite what you did to get here, you are a victim of the system. I believe that to the core of my being, that these folks are not getting the support they need, they don't have the privilege they need, they don't have the care they need, and that's why they end up in these situations. But they can all take control of their... They can all take uh, control of They have to. They don't have to come back. They can walk out the door with their head held high. They can take their story. They can own it. They can tell it in a way that that gives people hope. I mean, when I tell my story, I know, Dave, when you tell your story, folks are like, wow, this is a redemption story, you know, and it's not always perfect. It can be human. But at the same time, I have that response. Folks are like, wow, you've been through a thing. Maybe tell me more. Mm -hmm. They love it. Uh, People eat that up. I eat it up still today. Same. Uh, I don't have, it isn't, uh, I I meet so many people like you that, uh, and everybody that I've, almost everyone that I've had on the show, there's common threads that, um, that really, you know, resonate. they're all basically the same thing with a different twist. Um, we have to take control. We have to be accountable for ourselves, to ourselves. And I mean, once we realize that we, and know that you know this and you've been saying this, I've said it in a different way, that we can be powerful by not giving others the power. We, we, I can choose. I choose 
today. And I have chosen most days uh, since I realized this principle, I understood this principle that, hey, I, I really, you can blame, you can blame the system and the system sucks, but it's better to take your time and start enjoying the journey. Uh, yeah. En enjoy the journey, be powerful, be, control your, control your destiny. Uh, I'm a control freak, there's no <laughs> doubt about it. <laughs> and so if I can control my own self, I'm usually pretty happy. If I can control Lad, I'm fairly happy too. But, um, I think both things are true, Dave. I think it's real important, and maybe particularly for women. I'm not certain, but um, I think both things are true to understand. You know, there's a big message in prison that you should have thought of that before you committed that crime, or you should have thought of that. You know, there's there is this huge onus that's put on folks that it's all entirely their fault. They're there. I think it's good information for people to hear that it's actually they are in a pretty a system that requires pretty narrow values and behaviors, and to understand that it's okay not to fit into that. That doesn't make you a less valuable human being and once you can understand that then you know pick up the pieces and take control then walk the overcome. talk right you can, I think overcome. you can overcome anything oh heck yeah and, and I think you've done you've done it in your own life uh, lad it, it took him 20 years in prison to do it but uh, he did overcome that part of himself lad is you know lad you can beat up lad all you want that's just, right. Yeah. If you have anything that you got to get out today, just tear that up with just it. Throw it out there. I don't. My okay. shit's pretty clear, Dave. You're, you're feeling good. I'm peaceful. You're feeling safe. You're, okay. All right. Well, I'm glad. You know, um, we're talking about you going back in there. I, I know that when I was in there, Meg, that um, um, there's this one guy that was going to get out, and he told uh, me and uh, a crew of guys that uh, we used to hang around with, I'm coming back in. I'm going to come back in with my band, <clears throat> and I'm going to bring, you know, these guys in and play. And we were like, yeah, right. Yeah, this, this guy's never coming back in here. And I mean, if I got out, I would never come back in, you know. But sure enough, here he came. And um, just seeing somebody get out, do what was, you know, appropriate in the time that he was out in order to get approval to come back in meant a lot to me. So... When you go back in there, you know, what are the reactions of these people in there? What do they say to you? I mean, they there's got to be some. Me. <laughs> it's That's nice, so too. sweet. It's just, it's one of the most, I mean, I can't, it's very difficult to describe how touching, how moving. I mean, it's not easy to go back in. I'm not going to lie. I mean, this sort of post traumatic stuff shows up a little bit here and there, you know, and it kind of. I never really know how I'm going to be affected. I, I always am. But the relationship between me and all of the folks that I have seen inside prison, but really kind of powerfully with these other moms, um, what you just said is so true, lad. I can just feel it. It's this profound appreciation. And I remember when I was inside, not many people came in that really inspired me. There was one woman that came in and just did this really amazing talk for us. And it was absolutely valuable. So there's a part of me I want to like go in and be the thing that I never got. And my primary intention when I go in is if for the time that I'm here, if it's one hour or six hours, depending on how long I spend, if one thing happens, if the people that are in my presence feel like people, 
while I'm there. If they feel like human beings instead of numbers, I've done my job and everything on top of that is icing, um, then we're good to go because I think that that's really lacking in there is them actually feeling like valuable human beings. And then, you know, we talk about all the shame and the story stuff, but the relationships, I mean, it's... It's some deep stuff. It's very, very sweet. It's very heartwarming. Well, you know, that's the one thing about Dave that I truly appreciate, you know, being around him, uh, you know, with the bakery. Well, one thing. You know, a lot of things. A lot of things I don't. But, you know, when uh, I used to be with Dave at the bakery, and we would go, and Dave would speak at different places. And um, Dave was always, you know, I mean, Dave's very successful. And he's, you know, made a lot of money. And he's I was successful before. I, the thing is, that's remember, success was before the money. Right. And I was speaking before I got money, too. Right. But so quit interrupting me. And so what I'm talking about is that I've never seen anybody um, more natural with a group of people. But it's because he was open about everything. I mean, you could ask him any question anything. you wanted to. I mean, he would tell you, you know, what kind of underwear he was wearing if you asked it. But that was one thing I liked in what you're saying is that if you can get a, into a group and make people feel like they're just people. I like that a lot. Yeah, and when you have a shared experience, I you know, it's not actually that easy to get back in prison when you have a felony. So when you're able to do it, I think that that shared experience is something really special. I know that I always, you know, even now sitting here with y'all, like it's nice to be, we have a share, we have something that we understand that you have to get a pretty like kind of particular press pass to understand, mm, right? Yes. <laughs> and mm. so it's nice to have that shared experience. And then I think when we can actually take that experience and be really open and talk about all the things like you're just saying that you experience with Dave Ladd is that people are really receptive to that. You know, the, the thing that people want most from other people is to experience their vulnerability. And the thing they want least is to show their vulnerability. Like it's a, a strange dynamic. And when we can show up with these stories and be open hearted, be vulnerable and be, um, you know, incredibly radically honest, it really makes a difference in that that sort of deep part of folks before you even do any teaching or telling or rearticulating, like just that human connection. It's so important. Absolutely. Uh, I, uh, I realized early on when I was doing, you know, I put my, my, I put my story, I wrote my story out in, in a very short caption, sort of thing, three paragraphs or something. I put it on the back of the original bread bag, which was actually a sticker that we put on there and we took it to the farmer's market because I immediately knew that, well, we're calling it Dave's Bread, which is my brother's idea. Um, it was actually part of the family business that had been around forever, but it was a new brand, a new idea. And uh, I knew instinctively that people would want to know who I, who's this Dave guy. So, you know, why not just tell him? And I didn't know how powerful that would be. Um, but it, it ended up being, uh, it just, it blew me away, the response. And uh, it, it made it so that I couldn't stop working. I was working, you know, 80 hours a week for a long time, and, but loving every minute of it. You know, sleep was kind of getting in the way here and there. I, I like to think we've learned how to make crime pay. Yeah, she said that. I, I remember you telling me that earlier. <laughs> I like that. Um, yeah, if you take that, if you take that all by itself out of context, uh, 
it's not good, but if you take it in the context we're speaking of, it's pretty amazing. Um, you know, we don't, for me, one of the most powerful things about what I've done in my life is to be able to, um, to, to, you know, share the knowledge and the things that I've picked up. I think that's just, uh, it just blows me away. It, whenever I, I remember thinking in the fir first years, first year or two of Dave's Cut Bread, and people were like, help my son, help the, you know, help me with this, you know, help me with that. And I was like, well, I'm too busy, I can't do that. But I can tell my story. And uh, I was hoping that, you know, when am I gonna know if it's actually doing some good or, or if I'm just blowing smoke up people's ass or, or they're blowing it up my... Um, and then years go by, and even after I stumbled and fell hard again in my life, uh, people were talking about how I'd made a difference and my story had made a difference in their lives. That is the most powerful thing that I've experienced is how my, my story can affect others um, the way it has. And it's not the money. It's not the money. It doesn't mean I want to give my money away. Don't get me wrong. But anyway, so that's that's how powerful it is for me. It's been a lot of years. You've been doing this for a few years now. I've been doing it for a few years, yeah. I got, I got out of release from prison in 2005. So I've been working on this stuff since, me too. since then, yeah. Well, so... Um, how can we, okay, let's talk about your business a little bit. Let's, let's do some plug-in. Do you want to or not? We can okay. do, sure. Let's, uh, I'm just going to let you tell, what do you What want? I'd really like to plug is the, can we, can we talk about the crew that I work with inside a prison? Absolutely. That's what I'd really like to plug. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So uh, the Family Preservation Project is a, um, a group. They are run through the YMCA currently. They work in Coffee Creek. And what they're doing is they are, um, they are facilitating. They have a group of women from the prison. They apply to get in. They think they have about 12 to 15 women that get to be part of the program. And what the Family Preservation Project does is they act as intermediaries, and they help these women. They get to see their kids every single week, all Saturday long. They get uh, folks that they get to call them. Any they get to go in the office instead of, as you guys know, usually when you're in prison, you have to pay. You get only 15 minutes. You get it's very very expensive calling. A lot of families can't afford that. Um, so they get to go into the office. They get to call their children daily. They get folks that are actually helping be intermediaries with their lawyers, with their caretakers. They get classes on parenting. They get all kinds of uh, support. I have never seen a program that feels so authentic. They have zero recidivism rate so far, and um, they're just doing incredible work here in Portland, and um, I would love to see more programs like that all over the place. So wow. whatever support anyone can throw to the Family Preservation Project. There's a fantastic film um, made by a filmmaker called Brian Lindstrom. It's called Mothering on the Inside. Um, I'm not sure how available it is. It, it may be behind some paywalls, um, but really, really good look inside what it, what it looks like for, for moms in prison. Familypreservationproject.com.org? Uh, Family Preservation Project. You can find it through the YMCA website. Okay. Good question. I'd have to look it up, Dave. It's I'm not sure in my brain. I'm sure if you brain. Google Family Pres Preservation Project, <clears throat> you'll be able to right. find it. And then you can find me at megwarden.com, M-E-G-W-O-R-D-E-N.com. -E -E Great website. Uh, lots of thoughts, lots of uh, powerful things that she has to say about her experience. I can see that Meg um, is, has a lot of... Uh, 
passion. Uh, sometimes I can I hear I hear some you know something coming from way down deep when she's talking, um, and I actually experienced being that way too. And I, I mean, we're like. So I, I know where that comes from. I know it comes from your personal experience. I know that it creates a lot of courage. You, you have courage, uh, which is a very you know, beautiful thing to have. Um, and that's because, you know, in my, my experience, adversity teaches us more than almost anything else. Um, if you hadn't, you know, you can say all, we can say all we want about how fucked up the system is, which, you know, it is, this system, uh, all the way up to, you know, politics, which is something I, I, I think Meg would probably be really good at politics. I wouldn't. No, thank you. <laughs> no, 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 no. Don't even get me near you know that. What, you know what, Meg, um, it's kind of weird because usually the guests are sucking up to Dave, but this is the first time I've seen Dave suck up to somebody. It's just... It's almost Shut the hell up. <laughs> I suck up to no one, lad. No. I, don't, I suck up. Not, <laughs> I neither suck up. Let's have a competition on who can not suck up to each other more. <laughs> nice suck up. <laughs> I'm very impressed with Meg, but I'm not sucking up to her. Nah, really. I didn't feel that. It's, uh, it's nice to be here nice with you guys. I really, I really feel like this has been a great conversation. Well, we're just getting going here. We, we got a lot more to say, a lot more to talk about. <laughs> So, so uh, you know, um, you're talking about going in, and, and part of part of the project is, uh, you know, the mothering part, right? Can you uh, give me a little idea? You know, when you were in there, you had your baby. So how did that? Is that something that was a heartfelt thing because you went through that? Oh, good God, lad! Yes, I mean, uh, so yeah, I mean, when the federal marshals came to my apartment um I had just let's see how did this go down my son's father went uh we had six federal marshals show up at our house with bulletproof vests and guns and take him away one morning when I got up to breastfeed my um very new infant I guess he was about two months old when we had these guys rolling around up in our house and the father of my son disappeared, I was left alone with an infant, no money, no job, and an apartment in Brooklyn Heights, New York, which, as you might imagine, was not cheap. Um, I had some help with his friends. I moved into a smaller apartment, and then um, literally weeks later, uh, federal agents from this other charge showed up, different federal agents, different charge, um, and showed, they showed up for me. And so it was just absolutely um, a t- devastating. <laughs> it was devastating. Like, I can't even begin to describe what it was like to have these guys sitting there threatening to take my baby if I didn't talk to them right then. Uh, fortunately, I had the presence of mind to call a lawyer and mm-hmm. make that, um, you know, to not talk and to call a lawyer and to actually exercise my rights as a citizen. And, um, It was another, what, 14 months of being indicted by a federal grand jury and being in the system and doing the drug testing and having to go in and do all the things. So, you know, people think it's real. It was like you get caught and then you go in. But actually, I had been involved in selling this ecstasy. And then I had actually gotten sober 
gotten pregnant, had a baby. Like my whole life, I'd started doing yoga. I mean, my whole life actually changed before I went to prison. So this was no like jailhouse conversion. This was no, I got caught red handed. This is like folks told their story and there was a huge investigation and I became the New York wing of this big drug operation that was collecting all these different folks. All the drug dealers know each other, so it ended up being this massive indictment. And I didn't know anyone on it, but I was on the head of it because I was bringing drugs from New York City to Springfield, Missouri, right? Because well, I was like- fancy, you know, I was coming from New York City. And then. Um, yeah. Sounds like they wanted to, uh, you, you know, they wanted you to talk, and if uh, they, so they, tr- they trumped things up against you. They wanted me to talk, of course, because I was at the top of the food chain here, come, you know, bringing bringing this stuff into this town, and then. Um, what happened once we got closer, so I had to wait, 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 because they kept sentencing folks that were underneath me to build the case against me, right? And then once I got to the courthouse, I had a lawyer that said, um, you know, look, Meg, you are not this jailhouse conversion. You're not this sort of typical person, and we think that we can get you either probation or we can get you six months to self-report and that means you get charged and then you have six months to bring yourself to prison and check yourself in. I dropped my um, 18 month old son off at daycare that morning. Um, He used to stand at the window and the daycare teacher told me, you know, I would see him. He would make the the uh, sign language sign for I love you with his hands. And he would stand at the window. And the daycare teacher told me he would say, bye, mama, bye, mama, bye, mama, bye, mama, until he saw my car disappear. And you know how that stuck with me when I was driving to the courthouse? And I didn't think they would take me that day, but they did. They ended up, it was two days before Christmas. They cuffed me and they put me in the basement cell. And I didn't see my son again for about six months. Um, I describe it as an amputation. Um, I'm still not really okay with it. He's 15. It's very, very hard to think about. It's very hard to talk about. Um, You know, I've built a a, a conversation over the years with him that's been really productive and doing the work, yes, is part of, I think, part of the motivation for me doing this work is, and part of the motivation, in fact, for that immediate switch in my brain to make that time a gift was, God damn it, I was not going to let my kid down, you know? Like, if I had to leave my son, the leaving a baby is something that I would wish on no parent ever, and um, to have to do that, like, just something in me snapped, and I was just not going to let anybody tell me what this experience was going to be for me or for him. And so, yeah, hell yeah, lad, working with these moms, it is like both a way of making um, internal and external reparations for me and for my boy and for hopefully all the kids because, you know, statistics will show that children of inmates, they go to prison. And, uh, you know, I don't I don't want to see that in my life. I don't want to see that in the lives of the women that I work with. I don't want to see those children have to carry the shame stories of their parents. I don't want to see any of this. I want to see it all come to an end. <laughs> yeah, the system sucks, and but it's not going to shut down on its own. It's not going to shut down because we all decide we're victims of it. It's going to shut down because we all stand up and tell the truth. And there it is. And just make it less, uh, make the system less powerful uh, in your life. By and empowering ourselves. That's right. Yeah. It shrinks and each other. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a, uh, you know, it, it definitely requires. I know that when I was in prison, I didn't. Um, I learned not to need people. And that was my that was my best gift to myself. I know that's not 
Some people might say, well, that's not a good thing. Well, it was for me because when I got out of prison, uh, I didn't need people then either, and I was able to work my ass off, and I didn't have people to go home to. Um, so, you know, there's, there's things to be said for all that. You, you, but on the other hand, most people need people. Um, and nowadays I find that I kind of do too. I think it's a, there's an appropriate way of needing people, and then there's, like, some less healthy codependence. I think prison kind of does a good job. It did for me as well. I mean, I won't say prison does a good job. Let me rephrase that. I also Adversity. learned healthy boundaries in prison because you don't have any boundaries. You don't have—I mean, while there are major boundaries with the razor wire and the, and the big doors and everything, you know, especially the prison I was in, it's a lot of open space, and there's somebody up in your face all— all the time. There is zero privacy ever. And if you don't learn to keep good boundaries, you get really messed up. And so also, I really learned how to take care of myself in prison in ways that were actually healthy coming out of prison. I can reevaluate and have more mindful, healthier kind of dependencies and co-working relationships with folks rather than those more unhealthy like oh I don't I need something and I don't know how to get it right. now I know how to get it you had some time to think about that and put it you know get perspective I had some separation between myself and folks on the outside that were less healthy for me and then I had the opportunity to be around all the kind of folks that are on the inside and work on you know be able to recognize and some different behaviors and learn to shift them around. You know, um, one of the common themes that we see in uh, the people that we've interviewed in the past is that when they were in there, they took advantage of the educational system. Were you able to do that? I did, actually, yeah. Um, I don't know how much that served me. I took some, what did they call it, those those distance college credit kind of things. Um, I did a little of that, but, you know, I'll be honest with you, I have always been a real like autodidact sort of self-educated kind of person. So, I mean, I was never not reading 10 books. Um, I had started a yoga teacher training program. Like I told you, I had started doing some yoga before I went to prison and I had just signed up for a teacher training program. I was so like, oh, what do I do? You know, ended up writing them a letter and say it was so embarrassing. I was like, oh, I'm, now I'm in prison. Um, what can we do? And they were really open. They sent me a reading list. I ended up uh, getting the job as yoga teacher in prison. So I was able to teach yoga. I led meditation classes. Once I learned, I read the whole canon. I did all of the practices. And then, I mean, I was reading textbooks. I was learning Spanish. I was reading humanities textbooks. I was, of course, reading what, you know, Dostoevsky. You got to read Crime and Punishment when you're in prison, right? Um, carrying around dictionaries. I mean, I did everything I could in prison to make use of that time. So, I made use of some of the education stuff they offered. It wasn't super great. I um, definitely did everything I can to could to to get information and education and practice and do all of the things while I was there. Yeah, everybody's got a different path. Um, and you were getting your education, whether it was from you know the structure that was there. Uh, or your your own structure. It was a little own. bit part of the rebellious piece. I was like, again, these folks are not going to tell me what's going to happen here. I'm not going to sit here and rot. I'm going to mm. be a better person no matter what it takes. I'm going to find freedom here. Like, yeah. that was the biggest rebellion. Can I find freedom inside prison? If I can find freedom inside prison, I can find freedom anywhere. That's right. Yeah, and uh, that's a good place to start. 
uh, is while you're in there. You don't. You I mean, don't, may as well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what, what else are you gonna do, right? Um, just play cards. Yeah, you know, crochet. I, for many years, I played cards. I and, also crochet. Uh, I never became a great card player. Um, so. Let me see. That, that, I wanted to ask you if living yoga was a part of your... Do, do you know living yoga? I do. I am familiar, and I have never actually worked with them. I, since I've been on the outside, I have not done any sort of yoga outreach in prison. In fact, I'm not... My, my coaching practice now is really an expansion of teaching yoga, just mostly for pragmatic reasons. Yoga teachers don't make any money, and I needed to make a living. So um, I shifted around my work for that reason. But what I do now is so thoroughly informed by the things I learned as a yoga teacher, which is like how to, have, how to hold a really safe space and allow people inside that space to have their own experience, how to keep folks safe, how to, how to kind of access that mind-body connection, how to read it in other people, how to inspire it in other people, how to direct movements and allow folks to have their own experience within those containers have been really powerful, powerful lessons for me um, as, as a, a, a coach and a consultant and a teacher and those kinds of things. Um, but living yoga, from everything I understand, is a fantastic organization. I actually love everyone who's teaching yoga in prison. I think it's it's really there's a huge mirror between a lot of spiritual practices and incarceration, to be honest, that it's very sort of ashram like if you know, if you wanna make it an ashram, it can be an ashram, right? It's it's a contained environment you. where you've got this very specific schedule. It's a lot of, you know, discipline and structure, and that can be a spiritual experience if you want to make it one. It can strengthen you. It um, can. You can. You can choose to be a victim of it because, you know, sure, we're victims. But if we choose to be victims, uh, to play the victim, then, you know, that's not going to work for us. Recognizing you're in a fucked up system and being a victim are definitely different things. Yeah, there you go. Do you have, do you, are you enlightened by anything we're talking about? Do you have anything that, uh, Elon, Elon? Uh, I've, uh, on. thank you. I've been really interested in the microdosing, and that's been a, a real interesting trend right now, I think. And I can see how that would really, uh, could really benefit a lot of people without them actually, uh, totally tripping out. I would like to try that on a couple things. I really would. It is profound. That. I cannot say enough about my personal experience and the experience of the folks that I'm working with. I cannot actually, I actually sound high when I talk about it because it, there is no talking about it without being incredibly hyperbolic. I have been on um, psychotropic medications for depression and anxiety and all of the different, um, all of the different uh, diagnosis that you get as a particular sensitive special kind of person. <laughs> and um, I have never been able to access joy until I learned how to use plant medicine. And I think it's one thing is not wanting to kill yourself. You know, one thing is being able to get out of bed all day. It's an entirely, entirely different experience to have access to joy. And it, it helps us feel connected to the world, I think, as well, to the whole universe. We, so, we see ourselves in the universe. Yeah, there's a there are many schools of thought that say that plant that the medicinal plants of the world, which would be like the entheogens, like... Uh, 
cannabis, psilocybin mushrooms, um, ayahuasca, for example. There's a there's a, a group of particular medicines that are ancient things that folks have used to medicate or and in large part also add into their food supply and trace amounts, which microdosing is actually kind of mimicking, adding trace amounts to the diet, which would have been what was happening in antiquity. Um, and there's also a whole conversation around macrodosing that um, we don't need to have right now, but the microdosing piece, you know, these plant medicines, these medicinal plants that are on the planet, there's many schools of thought that say they're actually like an interspecies data transformation mechanism. So they're actually like helping us communicate to, uh, with the earth fast. world, right? They're actually giving us what it takes to communicate with the whole connection of the planet, ourselves and each other. Um, and that has been my experience is a deeper connection to nature, a deeper connection to my own body, my own um emotional and and spiritual life, being able to articulate that, and much, much better, deeper, healthier relationships and with is, people. Is it true that a lot of them are basically unlocking what's in our brains already, and that's we're actually experiencing some kind of reaction that it's sets off a reaction within our brain to get that feeling? Is that true? I would say there's a world where it's old information, that it's remembered, sort of stored information. Um, yeah. And, and I'm not sure we really, yeah, I'm not sure we really know, you know, I'm not sure that we've, we've spent so much time, so many years with these medicines being illegal that we're only now really able to start doing serious um, clinical studies. And there are studies being done on, on these medications. So, or these medicines or these plants, I should say, some of these, we don't really have the language for it necessarily, but um, yeah, hard to say what's happening, but there is ample, 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 ample allegory evidence that these medic that these plants are absolutely safe and powerfully helping folks have richer fuller more connected lives and helping them with things like the diagnostics I mentioned as well as addiction how illegal are psilocybin mushrooms they are quite illegal they are still a schedule one substance which is pretty freaking illegal that makes them considered more dangerous than cocaine but that is not actually the truth there are some um, it's state to state it varies there are of course some um, studies being done particularly in California I know there's one being done in Berkeley around depression so it's starting to loosen up there's a in fact there's a whole convention now um, psychedelic science convention that happens down in California there are many um, nonprofit groups that are actually openly and actively doing advocacy work around legalizing some of this stuff and then of course I also talk to people about microdosing cannabis which is legal here in Oregon so that's um, a real easy transition for people and does have some similar effects I think that they're um, they work well together and uh, even cannabis on its own, microdosing, you know, microdosing for, you know, anybody who doesn't know is taking a very small amount of a substance that is per that would be sub-perceptual or just at threshold. So just where you're barely perceiving, perhaps you might experience being more expansive and connected, maybe feel a little bit more creative, maybe feel a little bit, um, have some ideas, but you're not high. 
So that, that you're not a impaired, you're not intoxicated. Trial and error on, on how much that is, right? You start really, really tiny and work mm-hmm. your way up to something that's effective? or You start really, really tiny and then you work your way up to something that's effective. Uh, there are some protocols, but it's really unique to each person. When we're talking about plant medicines, we're actually talking about having a relationship rather than a prescription. These plant medicines are, you know, once you can get there mentally, you know, they're actually sentient beings. The plant world is a world of other sentient beings that just because they don't function through behavior, they function through photosynthesis, we kind of assume. And at some point, we kind of disconnected and assumed that everything that wasn't human is either scenery or food, right? But actually, these are earthlings, right? They're actually beings. So when we're in relationship to these medicines, it's very different than taking a Xanax or something where you get a prescription and we have all of this kind of scientific protocol about how this particular chemical works in your brain. When we're talking about cannabis or psilocybin, it varies quite a bit more. So when I'm talking to folks, there's journaling. You know, I start really, really, really low. I'm always very careful not to get people intoxicated and then carefully, carefully titrate up. And then it's up to the people, you know, again, here we go with self-medicate. When you learn to self-medicate in a way that's healthy and powerful, then you start to move your medication around yourself. And then there's also, there is a whole other conversation about the benefits of the intoxication as well. That's not necessarily something to be completely avoided. It's something to understand how to have a relationship with and possibly even... And not not just possibly, I can say there are benefits to that when used appropriately, when you're careful about your set and your setting, when you're safe, when you're mindful. I'm not talking about like overdoing it. I mean, certainly we all probably know that too much THC can um, sometimes not be fun at all. And, you know, you're laying in bed listening to Chill Hop, wondering what your arm hair is doing. It's not exactly like a peace out kind of kind of experience it's often like staring into the existential void right so we got to be careful with that when are, when are you writing a book because this is really interesting it'll happen it's gonna happen good for you um i wrote one about prison haven't gotten it published yet and i probably won't it was just kind of i think the experience of getting that story out of my body you know um but yeah i'm gonna yes. one more question how how is uh uh, does psilocybin set off a UA? Curious. Just academically speaking. Academically speaking, most UAs do not test for psilocybin. But you can. That can be detected. It can be detected if someone's looking for it, and almost well, probably a hundred percent of the time they are not. Right. It, so, take, it takes the wheels of government probably longer than just listening to one podcast to start testing yeah. for it. So. Well, I, was, I, I have a self-glorification uh, thing going on where I think they're always looking at me. Um, so anyway, well, I guess we're coming toward the end of the show. What a show. What a, what a great guest. Wow, we could go on forever, could we? Yes. Wow. I, you know, um, I want to thank everyone for joining us this week on the Felony podcast with it says to say Dave Dahl but uh, yeah that's me and thank you for our guest thank Th- you guys Meg Warden thank you so much for having me let me leave you this week with an African proverb why African why do we choose African if you want to go quickly go alone if you want to go far go together you're listening to the startup radio network listen learn launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.